guest in one of the uh, very memorable scenes in the movie called The Lord of the Rings. Most of you are familiar with that. Two Towers. You had uh, King Theoden of Rohan. And he was discussing the threat that was mounting, that there was going to be war against his kingdom. He realized that. But actually he had been mentally enslaved by um, Saruman, who was actually kind of like a traitor. And, but we also see that he was newly delivered by Gandalf's power. Gandalf tells Theoden that war is going to be immediate, that it's certain. And so he urged him to ride out to meet the enemy face to face. But Theoden asserted, I will not risk my people in open war. You remember Aragon? Gandalf's future king said, Open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. He said, You may not want to go to war. You may not think war is right upon you, but it is. No matter what you think, no matter what the risk is, you are in it. Well, that's something that I think strikes a resemblance to our own day as we think about uh, this movie. We think that there is definitely uh, good and evil in that. There is war in that constantly. Uh, Theoden depicts the mindset to that is common among Christians today that don't want to risk any kind of encounters with the world. They want to go face to face with the world in difficult situations. Don't only be involved with a spiritual conflict. They don't want to confront the hostile opposition that is out there in the world. The Gospel in itself definitely creates enemies, doesn't it? But the reality is that open war is upon us whether we would risk it or not. Those unprepared, those who are unarmed, untrained for battle, unwilling to fight, are going to discover this, that the world feels no pity towards the Gospel, the truth, or to those who believe the Gospel. I think we have seen that very recently. More than ever before. Satan and his host all array against the people of the Gospel daily are opposing the Gospel. Satan and all of his enemies with him, his henchmen, they go against Christian truth, go against the people of God. Open war is taking place. We have to fight. We have to remind each other, don't get tired, get back up. Go. We have to fight with the God-given weapons that we have been given. Do you believe in Christ? Then you have to believe that we have to keep fighting. It gets old after a while. It gets tiring sometimes. We have to keep fighting. Keep bringing forth the truth. You can say, well, how does war get into the Second Corinthians? This topic of war, how does it deal with what we just dealt with? in chapters 8 and 9, which dealt with the matter of giving and stewardship. Well, here we are in 2 Corinthians. We just finished chapters 8 and 9. 
and we go into a different gear. It's just like stop and go into a different section. It's a stark change of where we've been. And really, if you want to get 2 Corinthians in your head, there are really three sections. This is how you can break it down. The first seven chapters, it's dealing with ministry. Paul shows it through his ministry there and shows who he is and what he does there. second section we just covered in chapters 8 and 9. That's where we've gotten to. And that dealt with our stewardship. How we were acquired. We were responsible for what God has given um, to us. To what we do with it. A matter of giving. And the third section then deals with the apostolic authority of Paul. And the authority that he has. And of course it starts here with this particular section. Starting off with the matter of war. Subject of war there. That's our subject today. It's war. Calling this the warrior. What a change of tone that we've gone into. He's gone from praise to admonishing, from encouragement to warning. This chapter is really a spectacle of a minister of peace, a peace of the gospel that goes out and goes forth to war. Now, isn't that incredible? The gospel of peace goes forth to war. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? The gospel of peace also goes to war. That's rather remarkable. Christianity is warfare with a lethal, real, deadly enemy. So if you look through Paul's writings, you will find that all through his epistles. You will see that Christian life is a struggle, it's a battle, it's a war. We know that. Sometimes we'd like to just stick our head into the sand and say, I've had enough. Whatever's going on, I don't even care. It's alright. I'm just, I'm done with it. I'm tired. Can't do that. Don't have that choice. You're still in the war. Whether you want to be obedient or not or fight in this war, you're still in it. It's a struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Matter of fact, you've heard the old saying, we have met the enemy and he is us. That's one of the enemies, the flesh. And most of the time, that's the problem. It's our own flesh. It's our own self. How selfish we are. But we also battle against Satan. And we battle against the world. Three fronts. It's every side, isn't it? But I do want to tell you, on the back side, we have Christ. He's got our back. Matter of fact, He's got our front. He's got all of our sides. He's got everything, doesn't He? He's got it. Of course, we sing much about that this morning. Paul spoke of conflict. He spoke of war. He spoke of battles. He spoke of weapons. All over the New Testament. The same basic issues that we see in those 
epistles 2,000 years later, we are experiencing those same kind of things. They remain with us. The speculations, the reasonings, the thoughts of the worldly-minded, they need to be torn down so the Gospel would be believed. We're to help tear those down, those fortresses, those strongholds. Like It's like cannons shooting at fortresses and making one brick at a time, one stone, one big huge block come rolling down, and then another one. That's what the idea of the war that we are involved in so that the gospel would be believed to remove those barriers. And it starts with our own barriers. We have our own barriers up, don't we? We have our own walls that we build up. And the Lord says, I want in this room right here. I want this room right here. It's mine. So you can have all the other rooms, Lord. You can't have that room. He says, yeah, you watch and see. I'm going to crumble that room. I'm going to barge into it. And He does. In our day and time, seems like we just want to massage the atmosphere that's surrounding us. You know, the programs, techniques, motivational speaking, manipulating, use those kind of things. We want to change central thoughts and ideas and the world is trying to do that. She used to even name all the things that they're doing daily. They, they start right in the schools. They start before grade school. They start right there in the nursery schools. Start telling your kids what to believe. And now they're telling that a girl is not a girl and a boy is not a boy. I mean, I don't know how much further they can go. I mean, that's like one of the basic truths of all of mankind. <laughs> Whoops, I just said it. I said mankind. And they're trying to take that out of the language now too. I kid you not. I, you know, I say that, sounds like I'm really making it up. Just listen to the news. That's what they say, right? Oh, the ideas and the central thoughts of the world out there. Paul was no masseuse. He was not a massager. He wasn't there to soothe the worldly mind so that it would eventually cooperate with the Gospel. He knows that technique does not work. Paul was a spiritual warrior. He was seeking to conquer. Yeah, that's right, to conquer. To have victories, to subdue the citadels, the fortresses that were outstanding in the Roman Greco world through human reasoning, the philosophies that they had, their own thinking, and it was to be above every other generation before them. And of course, that's the way it is today when you believe in evolution. You think mankind is getting better and better, and yet we have more murders, and we more ha- have more thievery and such. All you have to do is look at Columbia, Missouri, and Jefferson City, Missouri. And every day on the news, there's been another shooting, another murder, another whatever. And it's constantly ever before us right here. That's the physical aspect. That's the human reasoning of our day. Man is getting better. The problem is, no, he is bad. Every man is bad. Dennis Helton is bad. That's right, I'm bad. It takes the Spirit of God to come in and start changing me or us. So we now look at how a warrior operates in this Christian realm that we are in, as we are to win the war against the thinking of the world and the human mind.
let's go to Scripture and let's see what can help us here. Let's let God speak to us because is this relevant? Oh boy, this is the Christian life. Let's stand. Let's, let's look at the warrior here, Paul. And let's see ourselves. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Father, great holy God, the warrior, Jesus Christ, will come back on the great white horse. He is the warrior of all. It's a war against sin, Satan, death, hell. Lord, we know that there's victory. We know the back of the book. We know the middle of the book. We know the front of the book. And there's victory. That's great to know when we're in war because we, we can't lose. We cannot lose. We may lose some battles, but we can't lose the war because you are the captain and you lead into totally victory. It's been done at the cross. But you'll come back and claim that victory. That's what we look forward to. Now help us, Lord, as we start a new section in this book to help us understand the, the authority that Paul had and the authority that he has as he realizes he's in war. And we're reminded that we are too. We need your Spirit. We need your power. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's urging them. There's meekness. There, there is gentleness here. Now, that's incredible. Why, why, does he, why does he do this? Right here, he shifts gears, goes into a different thought. The false teachers are saying this. How can you really trust someone, Corinthians, like this guy Paul, that hides behind his letters. He makes bold assertions in his letters how bold they are, how strong they are. And yet when he's face to face with you, he's like a chicken. He's a wimp. How could he trust a guy like that? Yeah, he talks big in his letters. So he says, hey, okay. I'm being charged with being bold when I write my letters. I'm authoritative only in my letters. Paul is refusing here to take the bait that they're giving here. That he could just go off on them. Use apostolic authority. Come in blasting at them with two guns, you know, both barrels aimed at them. So instead of appealing from his apostolic authority, instead of appealing from the majestic power and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and His authority, he actually 
doesn't blast them with apostolic commands or the strongness of Jesus Christ in that way. He uses the strength of meekness <laughs> and gentleness. You'll notice I didn't say weakness, but meekness and gentleness. That's what he's appealing to. So the first point today, where I have two points. That doesn't sound too bad, right? The first one is the appeal. The second one is the warfare. So the appeal is through meekness and gentleness. He's a warrior. So why didn't he come in there blasting them of what was going on? And and he starts off with this meekness, gentleness. He's slow to take offense. He's a soldier. Here's a mark of a good soldier. A really good soldier takes no joy in human remains and carnage strewn all across the battlefield. Paul didn't take joy in that sense. His power is restrained by his compassion. He has authoritative power, being the apostle, could use the authoritative power of Christ, and yet he restrains that. It's power under control, and that's the idea that's coming here with these two words. The word urge there is that word that all of us probably are really familiar with. I urge you. It's a really cool word, really. It's para kaleo. Para, parallel, alongside. Kaleo is our English word call, to call alongside. Just like he comes alongside as a friend to the Corinthians. It's like he puts his arm around them. And friendly like persuasion is the way that he starts with this. It's the beauty of this. He starts it's it's a friendly friendly type disposition. Very gentle. This implies self control, implies restraint in a very humble way. Having strength could have vengeance, and yet he controls it. Just kind of seems out of sync with what is going to follow when we start talking about war. Uh, two different things going on, but they're not. They go together. He, he takes pains here to reassure his Corinthian readers here, just like Christ would. He appeals in the way that Jesus Christ was. Uh, and this doesn't mean that it's it's soft, it's it's mousy. Uh, Christ wasn't soft and mousy, and neither is Paul. Uh, Aristotle used the word that we use here in this thought of a judge. A judge judges according to the law, at least he's supposed to. And yet Aristotle added to that not just judging and having justice there, but he tempers it with gentleness. To be judging, but yet with gentleness, with tenderness. That's a different thought, isn't it? So it's patient endurance of offenses. I have to think of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Oh, this is beautiful here. Come to me, all who are weary, verse 28, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. What a promise. Here we go. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from Me. This is where we learn how to think. It's from Christ, not from the world. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The school of Christ. That's where we learn. That's how we get our mind transformed. That's how we be renewed. It's an everyday thing. Every day. Individually. With each other. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He's humble. He's gentle. He wants us to learn who He is. 1 Timothy 1, 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience and as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Mercy. Perfect patience. That's Jesus Christ. Gentle. Humble. Jesus Christ. Nice to see that, isn't it? Now we go into that next word that was meekness, gentleness. We're kind of taking these two terms together because that's they're really great synonyms. They just belong together. Paul's meekness and gentleness was like Christ. Uh, gentleness is the idea of leniency, refusing to retaliate. When one has every right, full measure to the legal rights, and they don't use it against them on their offense. Patient steadfastness. Some kind of injustice has been done. Hatred. Malice. And yet, it's being gentle. Look in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul just reiterates who Christ is and what Christ did when He was here on earth. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice in verse 4, right? That's where that one's at. Rejoice. How can you rejoice? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. He's coming back. Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. There, Paul is telling the Philippians... You are a rejoicing church. By the way, keep doing it. And show that gentle spirit. Spirit of Christ that's in you. Matthew 12.20 Looking at Jesus just here for a moment, aren't we? Because this is the mark of Him. So, you know, we're never told to do something that Christ didn't do or isn't in the sense whenever He commands us, He showed in the flesh that He also did that. Look in Matthew 12.20 where it says, a battered reed He will not break off. And a smoldering wick He will not put out until it leads justice to victory. A battered reed He will not break off. 
it's, it's at the point of that this thing's going to break totally. It's not going to be of any value. And he takes care of that. Character of Christ. Character of Christ, he's the lion of Judah, though. Right? He's the king. He's the one who's powerful. And yet, he's what? He's the lamb of God. Character of Christ. The lion of the tribe of Judah speaks of a warrior, doesn't it? A warrior king. He is the supreme standard for all the soldiers. Paul imitated his Lord. Paul had the patience. He kept his power in check. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, when he wrote that first epistle that is inspired in, in, our, in our canon anyway. 1 Corinthians 2.3 says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That means he didn't come in there and his boasting or his powerful philosophy that was in Athens. He just came from Athens. He didn't bring any human philosophy. He came in trusting in the very power of God and not in Himself and persuasive words. It was the Gospel, the message, the preaching. Chapter 4, verse 21 of 1 Corinthians. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? He doesn't want to do that. Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Here we go. It's to come that way. What the enemies did was put a negative spin on Paul's compassion and turned it into weakness. They tried to make him look weak to the Corinthians. He's a weak man. He's a wimp. Paul's a wimp. Can you imagine that? They didn't know Paul, did they, if they believed that. Many of them were. He's bold when he doesn't have to come face to face with you. He's bold when he writes the letters. When he comes face to face, he's weak. They were, they were willing, and they were really ready to get him no matter what. No matter what he would say, whether it be forceful or whether it be gentle. Whatever he says, whatever he does, is going to be wrong. You ever been to that point? People are so against you that they're going to make it look bad. The truth is, is that he had strength, but he had compassion. And you know what? You can be a warrior who has compassion. Christ showed that. Paul showed that. How can you be a warrior and humble at the same time? What happens? I think Paul is quite a model for meekness. Can you have meekness and gentleness linked up with a warrior? With power and strength? You look at Jesus Christ and you can't help but think about whenever He went into the temple, drove the money changers out of the temple with a scourge. Or when He confronted the false teachers and the hypocrites in the severest possible terms, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, as He brought forth condemnation to them. And yet Christ is gentle, but He is a judge who judges sin. And when people do not want to follow His way, He has to be just, doesn't He? So meekness and gentleness never imply weakness. 
the one's strength and abilities to grasp the truth, to have it under control. There's a Puritan by the name of Henry Smith. Probably haven't heard of him. I think he really helps us here. I like this. As Christ ceased not to be a king, he didn't stop being a king, did he? Because he was a servant. A king and a servant. Nor to be a lion because he was like a lamb. Nor to be God because he was made a man. Nor to be a judge because he was judged too. Just like that, a man does not lose his honor by humility. But he shall be honored because of his humility. Henry Smith. Look at the Gospels. Teaching moment for all of you who don't know this. For the ones who do, you've heard it for 30 years. Maybe. Book of Matthew. What is it about? The king. Gospel of Mark. What is it about? The servant. You have a king. You have a servant. Isn't that interesting? Well, let's keep going. How many Gospels are there? Four. What about Luke? He's called the Son of Man constantly through Luke. The compassion we see in Luke. The Son of Man. So in Matthew, He's the King. Mark, He is the servant. Luke, He is man. And His genealogy is brought forth in the very outset of Luke as we see where He came from. The book of Matthew has a genealogy because a king has to have a genealogy. A servant doesn't have a genealogy. As in Mark, you don't see the genealogy. And Luke, you will, because man has a genealogy. He comes from somebody. He's man. But in the book of John, we see him as God. He's called the Son of God. John proves his deity all throughout the book of John. What do you have? The king, the servant. The man, God. The full spectrum. Incredible, isn't it? That's who Jesus is. He's the man, God. He's the king, servant. He came to serve us. To be a ransom for us. He gained honor for His humility as it is stated in Philippians chapter 2. He is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The lion from the tribe of Judah is also the lamb. Now, we go back to our 2 Corinthians here. So we've kind of dealt with the gentleness and meekness there. They're charged, and he says, uh, but bold towards you when absent. Whenever I'm gone, I write letters, man, I'm really bold towards you, right? That's what they that's what they were saying about him. He says, okay, uh, that's what you're saying, huh? Okay. When he comes, he's, he's going to have to be hard on some. He states in verse 2, I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold. When I come to you, I don't have to be bold. I don't want to have to be bold. 
with the confidence which I propose to be courageous against some. Do you get what he's saying there? That I don't have to be bold against some. I don't want to be that way. He asked that it not be that way. To not force himself upon them. To be harsh. Paul has a courage, a strength. He's in spiritual battles. Paul is going to have to fight. He's going to have to fight vigorously because of truth. And so when it starts getting whittled down, he has to fight for it. He's a warrior. He never backed down from defending truth or the gospel. And neither can we. He never backed down whenever he came before the Sanhedrin, before Roman governors, before Herod Agrippa, even the emperor himself never backed down. He's a warrior. The word there is uh, for bold, courageous there. Thoreho. To become courageous. Daring. It's daring. To act without fear. To have confident assurance. Now we've been just talking about gentleness, right? Humility. Meekness. And now he uses the word bold and he puts the two together. A confrontive kind of uh, courage. Paul was fearless when it came to truth. When truth became challenged, he fought it vigorously. Paul would be courageous. Dare cannot be avoided when it comes to truth. As D.A. Carson says. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, same book that we're in. Very last chapter, one of the last few verses. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity. He explains why he has had to be so bold in his letters, so whenever I come, I don't have to be severe. In accordance with authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down, I don't want to tear down. I want to keep building up, as Paul says there. Matter of fact, Paul even confronted Peter, didn't he? Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, who walked with Jesus Christ here on earth. Peter, who wrote First and Second Peter. Paul confronts him. Peter was kind of backing down, dealing with the gospel. They had to confront him. Galatians 2.11 How about 2 Corinthians 1.23? 2 Corinthians 1.23 But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. What's he saying there? To spare them. The news that he had gotten Except there's a lot of things there that was really wrong that needed to be corrected. That's when he sends Titus. <laughs> he was going to come, remember? And he changed his mind. He didn't come because he knew if he came, he was going to be coming in both guns blazing. I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again. I spare you. I'll write the letters. But whenever I come, I don't want to be coming in like that. 
And that's the thought. So we come from this gentleness to this boldness. Just like Christ. See, people today want the gentle Christ, but they don't want the Christ who is just. That is the God of righteousness. That is the God of glory and is way above sin. Totally holy. And people don't want that holy God. They want the gentle God though. That's the Jesus I want, right? There's a full round of Jesus Christ. He's the lion. He's the lamb. He's the king. He's the servant. He's the man, but He's God. The lamb and the lion. Jonathan Edwards called them the divine excellencies. None of us are that. But He's making us, and we are called priests and kings. So we are to be that. That's what is being called for here. So the accusations they bring against Him is unimpressive. That He's unimpressive, that He's ineffective, that He can't speak. He's short. He's ugly. And if we had glasses, we'd put them on Him. Can't even see. He's devoid of the power of the Spirit. He's motivated by self-interest. He's going to take that money and use it for himself. And he has illicit desires. That's the kind of things that are being accused of Paul. This is why he has to write what he writes. And they were calling him dealing with the flesh here in our chapter 10. It says at the end of verse 2, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. As if we are fleshly. Now, there's two ways of that. Paul's going to correct it here. But real quick, it's saying the sinful desires. A corrupted human heart. To be controlled by that to sin. And that's kind of thought they give it. That's the fleshly sense in that sense. He's walking in the flesh right now. He's not walking in the Spirit. He's walking in the flesh. Paul had a defense for this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Same book that we're in. Same letter. One twelve. it says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. You guys know it. You know that we conducted ourselves in in a worthy manner, not in a fleshly wisdom, not in a fleshly way. He'd said that before. Look in chapter 4, verse 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. We renounce those things. There's shame there. We renounce them. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. There again, he defends himself in the ministry. Chapter 7, verse 2. We've been here, haven't we? 
Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. There we go. Paul brings on the defense. He's been saying this all along, hasn't he? This is what we've read and studied. Here we are in chapter 10 and he says that. And now we come to point 2. This is what our message is about today. It's the warfare. They've made him an immoral person according to the weakness and sin of the flesh. And then Paul says, yeah, we walk in the flesh, but let me tell you what that means. It means I'm a man. I do have flesh. I am human. I have a human existence. I conduct my affairs in this world, but not according in a, to a fleshly way that's not by the Spirit of God. And so that is what he's bringing forth here as he hits in our chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, and, and he's not talking sin in there, that, that's what they were saying. Yeah, we walk in the flesh. And in this sense here, we're here on earth, we're in a body, I'm human. Yeah, I battle and I struggle. He's just a man. He has a body. Not warring according to the flesh. Verse 3, second half. We do not war according to the flesh. Yeah, I am in a human body here, but I, my war, I don't do it in the flesh, in a fleshly manner. Matter of fact, the follower of Christ cannot allow his conduct to be controlled by the considerations of expediency and self-seeking which were characteristic of his unregenerate state came from Philip Hughes in his commentary in 2 Corinthians. It's not controlled by expediency or whatever is best and self-seeking. That comes from our unregenerate state before we were Christians. The flesh is no longer our means to conquer. It's not the battleground for the conflicts. So he walks in the flesh in the sense that he's here in a human body, but he doesn't war according to the flesh. Isn't that interesting? He brings this war thing right on, right here in verse 3. That's why we were talking about war this morning, and next week we'll continue that as we move into, uh, we'll continue the thought of verse 4 and 5 and 6. Definitely not a time, time enough this morning to, to do that, so that's the reason we kind of held back on that. The flesh is not the means. What are worldly weapons as far as the flesh is concerned? Well, it's human ingenuity, human thinking. It's the rhetoric that uh, humans have, the showmanship. It's uh, the splashiness, the forwardness that that would have. That's not found in Paul's arsenal. He doesn't use that kind of sense in his battle. He responds but he totally gets rid of those kind of weapons that he would have used before. Remember the physical weapons that he used to use on the church before he became a Christian? He would have people persecuted and stoned to death and such. He was part of that. The weapons that he has now are entirely different, aren't they? They're spiritual weapons. Matter of fact, it says here in chapter 10, verse 4, that they're divinely powerful. 
spiritual weapons that are divinely powerful. Okay, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare... Straight, strat ulamai. Strategy. Warfare, strategy, right? Generals use strategy. Strata Uamai, to engage in battle, to serve as a soldier, to advance with an army or fleet. That is warfare. This is where we now make our shift. This is how war gets into this as we've come from meekness and gentleness and hanging on to that, and now the war hits. Warfare analogy. It's obvious here, isn't it? Paul has used that quite often. All believers are soldiers. They're in the war against the kingdom of darkness. You may not know it. You may not think about it. You might forget about it. We need to remind ourselves we're fighting alongside each other. We need those big shields of faith being connected to each other. Because we're out there fighting by ourselves, we're going to get shot at and beat. It's warfare. There's no match for it in the world away. There's no exemptions though. You you fight for truth. You fight for the glory of God. You fight for the honor of God. Paul uses this idea just absolutely frequently. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. This was forever etched into his memory as he brings it out in so many epistles. He says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? There he uses that analogy of a soldier. Look in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. It's in so much of the epistles that it, it has to kind of keep reminding us we forget what's going on in our world. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. That's a good picture, isn't it? And fellow soldier. Fights alongside with Epaphroditus. He needs those men. Fellow soldier. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. A lot of advice given by the Holy Spirit to Paul to give to young Timothy. 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You were called to this. And you made the good to the confession in the presence of many witnesses. Matter of fact, Paul has to really remind Timothy here because Timothy was getting ready to be timid. He's backing down on it a little bit. It was getting a little hard. He's getting a little tired. He says, you fight that good fight of faith, Timothy. Keep it up. Get up. Come on. You remember. Fight the good fight of faith. How about Romans 13.12? Speaking about the soldier. Speaking about the war. Speaking about the battle. 13.12. The night is almost gone. The day is near. That's a good promise, isn't it? Christ is coming back. I can't wait. Therefore, while you're here, 
for a little short time. Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the what? Armor of light. Put on your armor. It's light. It's dark out there. Put on your light while you're here in this dark, deep, dark world. Put on your light for all of them. Let me see. Just don't forget that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Oh, this is the epitome of the battle and the war. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Remember we were talking about although I walk in the flesh, I don't battle according to the flesh, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Don't run. Stand firm. 1 Timothy 1.18 Paul encourages Timothy again. One eighteen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Paul tells him again, doesn't he? Second Timothy chapter 2. Another pastoral letter. 2 verse 3 and 4. He uses analogies here. Verse 3 says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. A good soldier. He also compared him to a teacher, an athlete, a farmer. Here it's the soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Keep the faith. Keep fighting. All the way to the end. When Paul wrote this, he was at the end of his battle. As he wrote young Timothy. And he's still encouraging him. I fought it. You fight it. Can't give up. You can't stop. Matter of fact, you should engage more. Don't back down. I, as a pastor, am telling you that as a warning. Because we don't want to see you strewn out on the battlefield. Paul was always in a fight. He battled the kingdom of darkness. Is it dark out there? You betcha. Is it demonic out there? You betcha. Human, false teachers, philosophies of the world. They hate our truth, they hate our weaponry. The wrong weapons bring failure. When Hitler invaded Poland, some of you might remember this, no, 1938, 
It was before my time, believe me. I'm telling you the truth. It came in. <laughs> April Fool's joke or something. Came in with steel armored tanks into Poland. Do you know what Poland had to fight that? They were the only existing horse cavalry in Europe. Just because they're the only existing horse cavalry doesn't mean they're going to win this. Matter of fact, this battle was done in short order. Steel armored tanks come in. The cavalry is no match for Germany as they conquered easily and quickly. I believe Poland chose the wrong weapons. You choose the wrong weapons, you'll never win. Few with common sense would, would ever want to take on in a spiritual warfare trying to use their own thinking, their own wisdom. No substitute for spiritual weapons that we have to have. The fleshly way is so comfortable though, isn't it? We're familiar with those weapons. Don't be a fool to take on Satan with any other with your own way. Totally inappropriate. Inappropriate weapons are cleverness, ingenuity, organizing ability, eloquent with words, powerful propaganda, reliance on charm and personality. Those get you nowhere in a spiritual warfare. Powerful persuasive personalities, eloquence devoid of the Spirit. Of course, when Paul came into Corinth, it wasn't by eloquence of his words. Which I'm sure he was very capable of doing. He had before, before he was a Christian. He used the power of the Gospel. Chapter 2, 1-4, through four, he talks about that also. 1 Corinthians 1, right at the end of it. What are the weapons then, Dennis? What are the weapons? Let's face it, the weapons we have would be considered to be silly. Be considered to be absolutely powerless. What are they? In Romans 13.12, we read that earlier, talked about the armor of light. Light. Truth. Start with truth. Ephesians 6 we'd be amiss if we didn't mention that. I know it's old hat. But I forget about it. I forget about it in my own reading, my own thinking. My own daily war. And I, I even forget I'm in a war. It's like, I've got to put on my armor. Ephesians 6, 10-20 speaks of that. If we could, let's turn to there. It's a good reminder. First three chapters are about position, who we are in Christ. I love to hang out in those three chapters. And chapter 4 says, okay, now you have to live it. And there's the practice of the Christian life. Be nice to stay in the first three chapters. Be nice to stay up on the Mount of Transfiguration and just tent around there with the glory of Jesus Christ. I'd love to go right to heaven right now. Well, it's not in the plan right at the moment. It is in the plan. 
Ephesians 6.10 Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's some of that wickedness going on right now. (laughs) Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. That's right now. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore. Don't run, don't move. Just stand. Let the captain take charge. Stand firm. Having girded your loins with truth, Word of God. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Here's what I say. I pray to the Lord not that He take the chains away. I pray that He gives me a voice there. If He lets go, well, great, okay? But He had a voice there. What was happening? Well, people were coming to the Lord as He's in the chains. He had people to hear Him as they they, they sat right by Him because they were ch- chained to Him. He preached the Gospel. He had the Gospel. He had the truth. What better thing could have happened? Somebody's always going to be there to listen to you. And then the whole praetorium, the guard, and people all around, and Philippi as... We understand what happened there. The mystery of the Gospel changed people's lives. He wanted to speak boldly as he ought to speak. That's what he was praying for. He wasn't praying for money. He wasn't praying for helicopters and nice cars and homes and all the stuff that goes with it and flashy diamonds and watches. Pray on my behalf that I speak boldly this Gospel. See, the Gospel is what got him there in the first place. And he wants to preach it more? Yeah. That's right. That's right. The weapons of our warfare, what are they? The helmet of salvation? Knowing who you are in Christ. Talks about the belt of truth. Starts with that. Being committed to the truth that holds everything up. I let this belt down and I'm in trouble. You know, turn your faces. (laughs) Yeah, you guys are. Uh, I need this belt. It holds everything together. It's my belief in what the Word of God is. Right doctrine and such. Uh, the, the shield of faith that puts out those fiery arrows. The, uh, let's see, what do we have? The breastplate, of the breastplate of righteousness. 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 Jesus Christ, right. And shotting our feet with the gospel of peace. Once you take that peace out, there are certain people that respond to that peace and they say, this is good news and then others will hate what you just gave them. That's where peace goes to war. Um, the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. It's a dagger that hits right at the point that that person needs to hear. It's sharp. 
It's piercing. And Christ and the Holy Spirit makes an effect on somebody that their life now changes. There needed to be some surgery done. It has to be done or they die. That's weapons. Prayer. Notice prayer finished that off? All of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, we've read this before. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 7. We're getting near the end here. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness. The weapons of righteousness. For the right hand and the left. Weapons of righteousness. That's our weapons. We encounter open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. It's on there. You can deny it. You can say, no, no, no. I don't need it. It's okay. Let's don't retreat in the face of battle. Stand firm. We're commanded to do that. Pursue the destructions of strongholds. Fortresses. Pursue that they go down. Human reasoning, imaginations, vain thoughts. Do it with the weapons of God's provisions. We just read it in Ephesians 6. Other places. The Word of God. Prayer. That's how we fight. Our weapons have divine power. Did you notice that in chapter 10? They have godly power. With God, man is always in the majority. John Knox said that. We're always in the majority. Our weapons have divine power. They're divinely effective. This is God's power, not mine. And they get the job done. Destruction of fortresses, and this is where we'll go into next week. I'll just introduce it enough and then boom, we're... we're, uh, we're at the end here. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This picture is an army attacking, tearing down fortified defenses of the enemy. And in the ancient world, they would build a city, a city that was any kind of city, would build a wall around it, it'd be massive if it's prosperous. It's not, it was a stout wall, it was very secure. But those walls could go down. That's why they would have a fortified tower at that place. And it could be defended by just a few soldiers. The stronghold. If that stronghold, if that tower is taken, the battle's over. It's done. You're, you're beaten. You're finished. It was accomplished by a variety of siege machines that they would have as they besieged cities. The enemy would. They'd throw stones, they'd loft those, they would have battering rams and these mobile towers and catapults, catapults that would throw darts and big stones and would throw in there. The strongholds are arguments. They are lofty pretensions. It's the worldly thinking. Ideologies. It's everywhere. It's in the government. It's in the schools. It's in the entertainment. It's in every aspect that's out in the world. Lofty speculations and thoughts, ideologies, arguments, speculations, thoughts, plans, intentions. 
1 Corinthians 3.20. I've got that underlined. I've got other Scripture, but I have to go to this because it's underlined, okay? Dennis underlined this, I think. The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Anything that's not a God is absolutely useless ultimately. He's saying weapons that we have can destroy the way people are thinking, the way that they... Their thought patterns have been and it can demolish. One stone at a time can go down. They're thinking today that homosexuality now is a way of life that's been pushed into their brains. At one time they didn't believe that. Now they do. What happened? Because they got indoctrinated through the government, through the schools, through the entertainment, through every avenue that you can think of. The mental structures that they have and you want to come in just with both barrels. You want to go in with cannons. You want to go in with tanks and obliterate those ridiculous human reasonings and thoughts and speculations. Fortresses, strongholds, their systems, their schemes, their structures, their strategies that Satan has. He designs those to frustrate the people of the Gospel to obstruct progress. We have Christ's Gospel and we are not going to let Him frustrate what we have to bring Him down. Forms of teaching. Souls of men are in bondage. We were once there. Your thinking process is different now than it was, wasn't it? Look at every one of you. I've heard your stories. I know exactly what what you, you thought. I thought. Of course, I often think of Janice's story, how she was an, an absolute atheist. Oh, she hated the things of God. Well, we were all there. But I often remi- be reminded, I said, Janice, you? Because I, I know you guys are thinking, not Janice. Well, if, if it's Janice, well, sir, I'm even worse then, you know. But fortresses that she put up, that we put up, were blasted down one after another. I think of Ken Ham, uh, who stands for creation, has that museum. Let me tell you, I love the little cartoons that he would have when he pr- would present the creation story against evolution. Just magnificent. And he had this one where there was a fortress And here we are as Christians. And we're firing at those massive fortresses, taking down particular big stones, massive stones out of that fortress. Of course, you do it with a little BB gun and it doesn't make too much of a fact, does it? But if we as as individuals and as a whole, we can start making impact on an individual at a time. That's how you do it. I want to see those speculations they have that's ridiculous to be chipped away at by the truth of the Gospel. Let's sum it up. We're at the end. What do we do to take this home? Come back next week because we got the rest of the story. But here we go. Our warfare is aimed at dismantling and tearing down sinful reasoning and rationalization. And it starts with us. Remember the enemy. Our flesh. That's the beachhead of all this anyway. 
Start taking down some of that ridiculous, stupid, human, fleshly rationalization that we do to live this life. And get on with the Christian walk. There's strongholds there. The mind fortifies itself against the Gospel. The ultimate outcome is the taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we're going to continue on with this next week. Lord willing. The ideas, the notions, the plans are to be taken over and transformed as they come into a new allegiance. Let's pray. Father, we heard Your Word. This is not the words of Dennis because I'm weak. I'm really nothing. I, I, I really couldn't have come up with this. But Your Word speaks. Your Spirit speaks. Lord, may it make a powerful, amazing change in each one of us just today. That we've let this Word transform us, conform us to Your way of thinking and continue to transform us from that the worldly thoughts that we still battle with. We are in the war. Every one of us are battling. And we need each other. First of all, we need the captain. That's you. We need each other as we take this war on. And by that way, Lord, we can take hold and take captive of the speculations, of the fortresses that are against Your truth. Because the truth marches on. In your Son's name, Amen. Amen.